All right, once again, good morning. Uh, turn with me, please, to Genesis chapter 3. Now, at the end of uh, chapters 1 and 2, right, everything is great. God said it's very good. And if you read the last two chapters of the Bible, everything's great. What happened? <laughs> Genesis chapter 3. <laughs> okay? See, chapter 3 is the answer to COVID. Amen? This, this morning, my daughter was sitting at the table, and my wife had asked her to do something, and she said, wait, I'm just counting my change right here. And mommy said, no, no, I need you to do it right now. And Karen continued to count the change. <laughs> Why did she do that? Genesis chapter 3. My daughter Anna, when she was born, she was born with a biblical hernia. She's not too bad, but as a new parent, you see that, you're like, whoa, right? A lot of babies are born with birth defects. Why? Genesis chapter 3. Some of you experience death. I still remember... Uh, my cousin, her first child, in labor, minutes before the baby was born, everything was so excited. The next phone call I was going to get was this baby that was born. Instead, I get a call from my mom weeping. The baby didn't make it. What are the answers to these things? Genesis chapter 3. In fact, name the problem, whatever it is. Chapter 3 is the answer. You've heard the phrase, right? You hear people say, why can't we just all get along? Genesis chapter 3. I'm not into politics, but I know some of you are, right? And so many people think, man, if we just get that one man, that one woman into that office or into that place, you know, they'll solve all the problems. And guess what? We find out. It didn't. Why not? Genesis chapter 3. See, the suffering and agony of our planet has convinced some that there is no God. Those who do believe in a God find God somehow responsible for all that is painful. They think God is either cruel or that he's not in control. But God is in control. His perfect plan does include suffering and agony that we see all about us. You see, in answering the question, what in the world is going on? Another question must be asked and then answered. What in the world went wrong? And that's what we're going to look at today in Genesis chapter 3. This is what in the world went wrong. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Which again, many of you heard before, God did not say that. She kind of added to what God had said. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There was some truth to that. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. 
She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam and said, And where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden, to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed a cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And the Lord will bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's just pray. Uh, Lord God, we need your help this morning. Uh, There's a lot in here, and uh, we only have a little bit of time to get into it. And so, Lord God, we just pray that uh, you would just lead me and guide me to say those things which you want us to hear this morning. Uh, we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, what I'd like to do is just try to bring out some foundational truths that we can learn from this narrative. Now we know that Genesis, right, these are narratives, these are stories. We don't build doctrine on narratives, but there are still truths that we can glean from them. And Genesis is a very important book because, like I said, it is a foundational book. A lot of the things that we read about in the New Testament, the things that we know of today, they're laid out here in the book of Genesis, tremendously important you know even just last week you know I I think I've shared this before is you know if you asked anybody today what is like the number one evangelical verse today that people use you would probably say John 3 16 right 100 years ago I heard that's not the case it was Genesis 1 1 right it's foundational to know that God created everything that means you are accountable to him and of course that's under attack today right right the fact that God created But here, I want to just bring out some of these truths that we see here in just chapter 3. And the first one is this. We see in this story the tactics of Satan. Okay, I think it's important for us to understand how Satan works. 
okay, and his tactics. All right. First of all, we see that Satan attacks the wisdom of God. Satan attacks the wisdom of God. When Satan here in verses 1 through 3, he's talking to Eve, he is questioning the wisdom of God. He subtly does this by raising a question, right? It is not a frontal attack on truth. It is no Satan is saying, is it wise for God to make a distinction on this one tree while allowing you to eat all of the others? Would a good, wise, loving God really do that? You see, Satan implants within the mind the idea that God is unfair, not permitting Adam and Eve to eat from all of the trees. Listen, when the human mind is tempted with the fairness of God, this is the work of the devil. Eve understood God's command perfectly. She knew that she was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She also understood the consequences of eating, which would be death. God put this limitation upon man so he would remember that he is creature. He is not God. God told him not to eat to test their willful obedience to him. This limitation was put there for man's good. And God knew the consequences, even if man did not. It's important for us to know that God puts limitations on us for our own good. And when we violate God's moral law, the result is always sorrow, heartache, and misery. But not only do you see Satan attacking the wisdom of God in his tactics, but we also see him attacking the word of God. We see in verse 4, Did God really say, or have God said, these words are essential. In fact, he says it in verse 1 when he says, Have God said. The devil always tries to get people to deny God's word. All sin as its beginning is a failure to believe what God has revealed to us in the Bible. And now Satan openly substitutes right, a lie for the truth in verse 4. But he does it in the realm of the future where you cannot check the results until they happen. God said they would die, but Satan says they will not die. Having planted this doubt, Satan now is bold to advance a direct denial of God's truth. He's now in a position to deliver the knockout blow. Eve is being pushed to deny the authority of God in her life and to accept her independence from God. Satan is telling Eve that to be really free, she is to have no restrictions on her, not even from God. And then lastly, when it comes to the tactics of Satan, not only does he attack um, the word of God, and not only does he attack the wisdom of God, but Satan also attacks the will of God. You see, this is calling God's will into question. For it was not his will to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Notice that this is a distorted half-truth set forth by Satan. For God said that they would know good and evil, but he never said that that was a good thing as Satan implies that it would be. 
The devil forgot to tell Eve that this would be the worst thing that could ever happen to man. Eve thought this would be something wonderful, exciting, and glorious. But the result would be disastrous. And so we need to know the tactics of Satan. We live in a world today where we see all the time people think that God is unfair. Right? Where they do not, they deny the word of God. We live in a world where it's anti-Christ, anti-Bible. They question the will of God. As we said, with all the suffering and the agony that's going on in the world today. And so we need to be cautious and be aware of Satan's tactics, even in our lives today. But we also see in this narrative here, we see the types of temptation. We see here a a lust of the flesh. You see, Eve's first rationalization was that the fruit would be good for food. You see that in verse 6. It would satisfy her immediate need of hunger. And the long-range effects would have to take care of themselves. This is the lust of the flesh. It lives in the immediate present. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it is not of the Father, but it is of the world. This verse also gives us the first step in temptation. Right? In James chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, it says this, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. You see, there are three steps here. First is to arouse the desire to do wrong. Two, to permit intent to form or uh, to form an act to occur. And then, of course, step three is to reap the results, which is death. You see, Satan put a question in Eve's mind, and she felt a wrong desire being awakened in her heart. Satan had managed to implant distrust of God's wisdom and goodness in her heart. He is seeking to alter the image of God in her thinking. He is saying pretty much this. Either you misunderstood him, and he did not really say that, or if he did say that, then obviously he is not quite the kind of God that you imagined him to be. The lust of the flesh. You see, the Lord Jesus was tempted also, wasn't he? Forty days and forty nights in the wilderness. And Satan tempts him too, doesn't he? He commands him to turn the stone to bread. The lust of the flesh. And Jesus says this, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. You see, more important than the satisfaction of physical appetite is obedience to God's word. But not only do we see the lust of the flesh here in this story, we see the lust of the eyes. Eve's second rationalization, right, was that the fruit was a delight to her eyes. Which indicates that it was pleasurable. It excited the senses. And according to 1 John 2.16, which we read, this is now what we call the lust of the eyes. Note that the pleasurable 
is always present in temptation. Sin is fun. At least for a while. You see, it is the pleasure of sin that makes it so enticing and alluring to us. There is the element of the unknown. And this is the one reason we sin, even when the mind tells us it might be harmful. Sin ultimately destroys. This temptation concerns the soul, whereas the lust of the the flesh concerns the body, the lust of the eyes concerns the soul. And again, in that time there in the wilderness, Satan promised Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if he would just worship him. And Jesus' answer was, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So not only do we see in Eve here the, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, but we see this third one that First John chapter 2 talks about, which is the pride of life. You see, her third rationalization was that the fruit would make her wise. You see, this reinforced her pride or ego. You see, the snare of the devil is the pride of the heart, the ego of man. And this is the pride of life. You see, this one concerns the spirit. You see, three of the strongest drives of human existence is physical appetite, desire for power and possession, and desire for public recognition. And we see all three right here in Eve's response to Satan's temptations. Not only that, but do we see in this story too a turnabout of authority. We see a turnabout of authority. The Bible says that Eve was deceived. It says Adam was not. And that's important. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Eve did not know what she was doing, as Adam did. Adam's sin was more blameworthy, both because he was the one who was to lead and because he sinned knowingly rather than ignorantly. The Bible says very clear that Eve was deceived. Adam wasn't. Perhaps maybe that's why Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one Man sent into the world. Wait, time out, man. Eve took the fruit first. No. She was deceived. Adam had a role. He was in authority there. And the Bible says that it was through Adam because he knew what he was doing that sin entered the world and death through sin and thus spread, death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, this chapter also tells us some definite facts about sin. One is that God is not the author of sin. God is not the author of sin. And also that sin came to man from without, not from man's original nature. You see, this fall reverses the divinely established order of authority. There was a chain of command to God. That chain of command went like this. God... Adam, Eve, and then creature. It's all in Genesis 3, actually. 
Okay? That is the chain of command that God had set up. The order of actions related to the fall are as follows. Serpent, Eve, Adam. You see, when God confronts those responsible, did you see this here in also chapter 3? The order is that of his chain of command. He goes back to, first he addresses who? Adam. Then he addresses Eve. And then he addresses the serpent. It is little wonder, right, that the one who rebelled against God's authority over him would seek to overturn God's order of authority. You can read about that in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, but that's why Satan fell. Lucifer fell because he himself rebelled against God's authority over him. He didn't want to be better than God. He just wanted to be like God. He wanted to be at the same status, same level of God. And so he rebelled against God and sinned against God. And so it's no wonder why he would also do the same thing. His first chance he gets is to turn about God's authority. Adam had the authority. Eve was to submit to Adam as her authority. And she didn't. It's no wonder, too, that in most churches today, right, that's the one complaint people have. Well, can women take a position of office in your church? Are women allowed to speak? In your church? It's the first one that comes up all the time. Listen, this is a foundational truth. This is not just some cultural thing. It's not just something. It comes right from here, and I can prove it to you. Not only do we see it here in Genesis, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35, it says, Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak. They are to be submissive. As the law also says, and see if you see how this is related to what we're learning here in Genesis 3. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. You see what Eve forgot to do? Her husband's right there. The Bible says she gave to him who was with her. Adam was there. And don't worry, Adam's not off the hook here. But all she had to do, when, when the serpent is talking to Eve, she said, hey, listen, you can talk to my husband. He's right here. But she didn't. Not only that, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, it says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. And look what the reason is. For Adam was formed first. Then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Here's Paul giving instructions for the church, saying, listen, I don't want the women teaching. I don't want them having exercise authority over man. Here's the reason. All the way back to Genesis 3. It's where it got all messed up. God has a chain of command. God has an order of authority. And Satan from the very beginning messed it all up. And so even today, some of you are sitting here as I see this, you don't like what I'm saying. It's God's order of authority. 
In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, he says, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. That's God's chain of command. And we would do well to study that and to meditate on that. Because homes are wrecked today because they don't follow God's order of authority. Churches are wrecked today because they don't follow the order of God's authority, God's chain of command. And it happened way back in Genesis chapter 3. It's a foundational truth. But not only do we see that, we see here in this story a tutorial on salvation. You see here in verse 7 here, there's an awakening to sin. It says that their eyes were opened. Disobedience brought an understanding of evil as well as good. Now their eyes were opened to the fact that they were corrupt and polluted because they had sinned against God. This was an arousing conscience and an awakening of understanding to the realities of sin. They recognized their lost condition and realized from a high, what high estate they had fallen. It says that they knew they were naked. See, before the fall, men and women saw things as they actually were. They beheld the world about them as good, for they knew only good. Nakedness is good. But a knowledge of evil, because of the fall, brings a perversion to all that is good. Now everything is judged from a false standpoint, and nakedness now becomes a matter of shame. You see, the fall brought a state of self-consciousness and they were embarrassed about themselves. The world is now viewed from the focal point of self rather than God. God did not originally make man to be self-conscious. His interests were to lie outside of himself. He was to be selfless. Not only did their eyes open and they Knew they were naked, but it says they made themselves coverings or aprons. Aware of sin, Adam and Eve being human, now they try to clothe themselves with fig leaves. So perverted was their reasoning that they make the first attempt at salvation by works. All the way back, isn't it amazing? Even today, so many are trying to earn favor with God trying to gain salvation through works. Goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. <laughs> the first two people ever did the same thing. Man cannot do the impossible. And it is impossible that a fallen creature, by its own efforts, can clothe their nakedness and present themselves to God. Impossible. Salvation must come from God who can clothe men in his righteousness. Now, clothing somehow helped their self-consciousness. <clears throat> this explains why the whole human race, psychologically, right, they find it necessary to clothe itself. Clothing makes us more secure. It helps us to project an image to cover up self-consciousness. We don't want people to see us as we really are on the outside or on the inside. And so there's awakening of sin. But we see there's also an awareness of guilt. They hid themselves. Right? Adam and Eve discovered that they were sinful, but now comes that guilt that accompanies a polluted heart. 
their human consciousness begin to function and they experience the inner torment of guilt. Man hides himself in his first attempt to interpret life and reality apart from the Creator. It's foolish for them to hide from God, for He knows all. Right? He's their Creator. Yet this is no more foolish than modern man who makes every effort to escape Him. Making every attempt to deny the realities of life or create a philosophy of life that excludes God. Psychologists agree that guilt is a universal reaction to life. That without apparent reason or explanation, all of us suffer from guilt. Why? Genesis chapter 3. It all goes back to the fall. And then we see the approach of God. I love that the Lord God here, it says he called Adam in verse 9. Man broke away from God, but God will not leave him in this condition. God had every right to strike Adam and Eve with physical and eternal death. And no cry could have been raised against him. There is nothing that compels God to save man. He does so out of his own good pleasure. And his approach to man is love. It is God who takes the initiative to bring man back into fellowship with himself. It's important to know that all religions, apart from Christianity, they begin on the note of man seeking after God. Only the Bible starts with a view of God seeking after man. This is one of the essential differences between the Christian faith and other great ethnic religions around the world. And then God says, where are you? Well, we know God did not need to know where Adam and Eve were, for he's omniscient. Right? This question was designed to bring Adam to a realization of his sinfulness so he would confess his sin before his God. God is moving to bring Adam and Eve to repentance, to a change in their minds. And this question was spiritually designed also to alert man to his tremendous lost condition. When a man is lost, the most important question he can ask is, where am I? Only when man sees his lost condition in relation to God can he then be saved. And this is the first act of saving grace in the Bible. In all justice, God might have cast men then and there to everlasting punishment. Instead, he approached man in tender love to announce his determination to save him. Not only do we see the approach of God, but we see the anticipation of repentance. Adam says, I was afraid. It's important to know that sin and guilt bring fear. When man sinned, he thought he would be free of God and independent of Him. But he found no freedom at all from God. (laughs) Rather, his call reached unto them and they heard his voice. Even in their sinful condition, they cannot escape from Him. Great fear comes when one realizes that he is guilty before God. For God alone has the right to judge men. I remember one time at Parkside Ranch, um, I was sharing the gospel with the campers there, and then later that night I was in their cabins for their devotion time. There was one camper there who was not saved, and 
um, the one thing that struck him from the message, I guess, was he had heard that hell was forever. And that there was weeping and gnashing of teeth and torment and for all eternity. He kept saying, listen, he goes, it's like forever, like forever and ever. I said, yeah. And so he actually accepted Christ that night for fear of hell. And I still remember that. I was a young guy. I was, you know, late 20s maybe. And I just thought, man, I don't know if that was right for me to share that with this kid. I was sharing with someone else. And he said, listen, one of the great motivation of people getting saved is fear. <laughs> it's okay. Right? I remember being six years old. One of the reasons I trusted Jesus as my Savior is I didn't want to go to hell. <laughs> Not only were they afraid, it says, who told you that you were naked? And he said, of course, have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to? You see, God is now showing Adam and Eve that their sin is more serious than just the consequences. He wants them to see that they have a polluted heart now, that they have rebelled against the holy God of heaven and earth. God gives a straightforward question, and it deserves a straightforward answer. A simple yes, an admission of guilt would suffice for an answer. A simple, honest confession is what God sought. And what does Adam say? The woman whom you gave me. Now, it's interesting is that Adam ultimately doesn't blame Eve. He blames God. Right? For it was God who gave her to him. He's saying that God made a mistake. But this is just human rationalization, right? Which fails to face up to its own responsibility for sin. They do eventually, as you see, they're kind of, it's amazing what God accepts. Right? When he says the woman, then the woman says the serpent deceived, and then she goes, and I ate. And it's almost as if, okay, that's all God wanted. As soon as she said, I ate, um, they indirectly kind of admit that they were the ones who ate the tree. He sees that as reason, um, and and God accepts it. It's amazing to me. Um, he's a sinner. Separated from God and at the mercy of God. And God is going to provide forgiveness. And so it says here, what is this that thou hast done? And of course she said, the woman said, the serpent beguiled me. Um, and then uh, for time's sake, we're just going to look at this. The last thing is the assurance of a redeemer. Um, we see that there is... Uh, this amazing um, verse here in verses uh, 14 and 15. Verses 14. These two verses have a double meaning, right? It certainly refers to the literal serpent who will be uh, at enmity with the seed of the woman, which represents the human race. However, the context implies more and refers to the enmity between an unbelieving and believing seed in all of humanity. It most certainly implies that this seed is messianic. Some people call this verse here in verse 15, I don't even know if I'm saying it right, the, the pro-te-evangelium. In other words, this is the first preaching of the gospel, verse 15, by the early church fathers. Okay? It is the first promise of the coming Redeemer. And of course, there is uh, consequences Right, The snake is going to crawl on its belly for the rest of its life. There's going to be enmity now between the woman and uh, the serpent. <clears throat> and then, of course, we have this tremendous um, prophecy here that uh, 
although he is going to bruise his heel, and that can re represent a whole bunch of things, uh, from being rejected by his own to coming here and enduring hostility uh, of, of, from sinners to being nailed to the cross, um, suffering, all those things, right, that uh, her seed would have to endure, right, that Satan would bruise, right, his heel. But ultimately it says that he shall bruise your head or crush your head, okay? And that refers to the fact that the Messiah will deliver a capital blow to the devil, which will be fatal, okay? Um, you see, the goal was redemption accomplished by the seed of the woman and rebellion countered by the obedience of the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so <clears throat> I wish we could get into more, but I don't want to keep you any longer. Uh, certainly there's a whole thing with the tree of life uh, there at the end as well. Uh, but what I want, and I started off today by asking you, listen, in chapters, the end of chapters one and two, everything's great, right? In this paradise. And then at the end of chapter, uh, Revelation, the last two chapters, everything's great again, right? Like I said, we know what happened now. <laughs> it was the fall, right? Um, but what's amazing to me is that, and it's that discussion we can have all the time is, um, although God is not the author of sin, right? Sin came from without, right? But, God knew that they were going to sin. God was aware of it. And that's just an amazing thing to think about and uh, thoughts. And, and one of the things that's amazing is that God, knowing that they would still sin, right? Um, he knew ultimately, even after the fall, right? That he planned uh, for redemption through his son before the foundation of the earth. He knew that he actually could make things better. Which is amazing to think about. Like here was this paradise. It couldn't get any better. But actually, what I'm going to show you here in a second is that actually it is better. That which is coming still. Um, and so in spite of man, in spite of man's fall, God is never caught by surprise. God is never saying, oh man, they really ruined things for me. God, God is aware of these things. And so um, I have a slide that we're going to put up there. And um, I don't know if we're going to, do we have it, Daniel? Josh, you got it? Yep, oh, here we go. Um, and so, in some ways, the last paradise, right, is like the first, right? And like I said, there's a tree of life. There's going to be a tree of life there. Revelation talks about a tree of life, uh, which was lost in paradise. It is in the heavenly city. Um, but at the same time, they're not identical, okay? Um, the paradise of Revelation is not identical with that of Eden, as you can see there, there's a bunch of things that you can take a look at there. The paradise of Genesis has a sun, has a sea, has a night. The paradise of Revelation, there's no sun, no sea, no night. Okay. As we just looked at, the paradise of Revelation, the curses of Genesis are removed. You see, you're still experiencing the curses of Genesis right, today. Okay. Um, but there's coming a day in this paradise that we read about in Revelation where the curses are removed forever. And of course, the paradise of Revelation, hopefully by looking at some of those things there, you can see that is vastly better than the paradise of Eden. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that, man, that paradise of Eden, it must have been amazing. It must have been amazing, that, you know, uh, to walk with God in the cool of the day and uh, to, to just enjoy all the things of that paradise there. But then man sinned. 
man sinned and, ru- and ruined everything. Uh, but God wasn't caught off guard. <laughs> okay? God knew this was going to happen. And it's amazing now that we've, we can look forward to this heavenly paradise one day. And as good as the paradise of Eden was, this is vastly better uh, than anything else. And so God is an amazing God. He's an amazing God um, that something so tragic, as I said, every problem that you can think of today is because of what happened in Genesis 3. How, how tragic that was, how bad that was. God um, was able to not only provide a redeemer uh, for mankind, but also come up with a new paradise, which is even greater than this one uh, that we've read about. So let's close in prayer. Uh, our Father in heaven, we thank you so much again for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, God, we read in your word uh, that, yeah, because we are descendants of Adam, uh, even if we never sinned a day in our lives, we would be destined for hell because it is in our nature now. Um, but we also read in your word that uh, even if that wasn't the case, we all have sinned. <laughs> we have all rebelled against you. We have all chose to do wrong. Uh, those times we've been enticed and, and we knew there may be some harm if we do it or don't do it, and yet we still do it. We have committed sin. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are so thankful, um, Lord God, that you approached us. You asked us where we were. And each and every one of us had to acknowledge in our own time, and our own lives, whenever that may have been, that we had sinned against you and that we were uh, far from you. And so we're thankful that because of the blood of Jesus Christ, that one whom you promised so long ago to Adam and Eve, uh, we have now been brought near to you, God. And not only do we have our sins forgiven now, not only do we get to enjoy a relationship with you, uh, but we're thankful that there's a paradise waiting for us. Even better than that of Eden. And so we again, Father, are grateful uh, this morning. Hopefully may these words encourage our hearts um, to know that you are in control. And to again know why uh, all these things happen in the world today. It's because of sin. Um, and we're uh, Father, we're thankful that uh, you um, came up with a solution for that. And uh, again, we are grateful uh, this morning. Um, Though we were sinners, we're thankful that we are now um, saved by your grace. And so uh, we give you thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen.